Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. As was mentioned, my name is Tim B. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm a sexaholic. I brought my own timer as well because I probably ignore Mike since he's the one that helped set me up with this gig. So I'm grateful for this opportunity that I have to be in front of each one of you. I was uh, trying to figure out if I've ever been presenting in front of a group this large before, and the answer is no. One of my key fears or... uh, Uh, and triggers in the past was actually speaking in front of groups. And so this is actually a monumental step in my own recovery, and I'm looking forward to it being over. (laughs) All right, let's start out with how I got here. Uh, First of all, uh, I'm fully vetted, qualified. I've got all my certifications, papers. I've been re-upped, recertified. It's all good. So I started when I was four. I decided to become an exhibitionist at the age of four. And the interesting thing is others are like, how did you start at four? The interesting thing is that did not come out until later on. Well, after I did my first step inventory, I was like, wait a second. I think I started a little earlier than when I originally indicated. I progressed in my addiction at the age of six. I was introduced to pornography. And then I progressed from there and continued in pornography and different things that I just magically happened upon, I was, uh, and just, it just continued to escalate. I got into masturbation at the age of 13. It continued to get worse. I started to uh, sexually assault and didn't realize that, that that was what I was doing, and it progressed from there. Now, the thing is, is I realized that I, there was something wrong at the age 16. I was like, there's something seriously wrong with me. I cannot stop, and I've got a problem. One of the things I learned early on is don't tell any about anybody about what I'm doing. Otherwise, I'm going to be shunned and uh, nobody will want to talk to me or ever, ever spend any time with me at all. I grew up in a very religious home. I went to church every single Sunday. I had religious services and different things that I participated in. As I was growing up, I heard about God all the time as I was growing up. And I thought I knew who my higher power was as I was growing up. I thought I had a clear definition of who my higher power was. One of the things that I recognized was is that I was constantly going over boundaries and crossing boundaries that I never expected to cross. I'd made determinations. I'd tell myself, I'm never going to cross this. And I was successful in many other areas of my life. Many things were going right for me as my my sex addiction and sexaholism life went downhill, and I, it just baffled me. I was just like, how is this possible? As I continued in my addiction, I bought into a lot of the lies. Uh, as, I, as I ran into different things, uh, when I was talking to friends and other people, there, it seemed like sex was the, the key thing to look for, and, and being sexually attractive or, or just being out there. Uh, and being 
wanted and lusted after was one of the key things that I was looking to, to have and be one of the in crowd. I participated in many different sports. I participated in different groups. I tried to find love in all of the wrong places. I tried to do different things that other did, others did in order to try and become loved or welcomed, welcomed in. I even lied about sexually assaulting in order to become part of a group as a child, which is just crazy, the different things that I did. I actually led a very double life. On the outside, many thought I was just a wonderful individual. And when they got to know me a little closer, then they realized that there was something wrong and that there was something death wrong. What I learned when I was growing up is AA does not work. I had a long-time uh, alcoholic grandfather who had been going to AA for years, but when I, uh, when I came on the scene and met him, one of the uh, things that I actually was able to do for him was to go and uh, pick him up when the police uh, were about to take him into custody. They gave me the option of picking him up and taking, taking him versus them taking him to jail. And on the way, he would tell me to push him outside the car while we're driving down the freeway and run over him, which is kind of traumatic uh, for myself. And I was thinking, this is just kind of crazy. But the interesting thing was, is he always asked or requested to go to AA meetings. And that just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, why on earth would you want to go to an AA meeting that doesn't work? And I didn't learn this until later on, until recovery, many years after that experience. When I was going, going through and reflecting uh, on my experience, I was thinking, I come from a very long line of addicts. Now, I have grand, both biological grandfathers are, are well-renowned addicts. Uh, and I found out later that uh, I've got a really good pedigree, and I've, I've got addicts on both sides, and I was just like going, this is crazy, and I didn't find this out in very much detail until after I joined SA. So let's fast forward a little bit. My teenage year is kind of crazy. My parents were like, okay, there's something wrong with him. We need to help him out. Let's move. Hey, that solves a lot of problems. So I moved to a different city. And I had a new start. And actually, I was thinking, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I was able to spend nine years trying to stop swearing. I had worked on that for nine years. I was going, okay, it's a good thing if I don't swear. I moved, moved to state. Utah, and, this, and I was, got a new group of friends, and I was going, I put on a good face, I tried to avoid everything, I was like, I knew that pornography is a bad idea, and things like that, I was like, okay, I'm going to stay away from the crowd that, that loves pornography, I'm going to stay away from, stay away from this, and I did pretty good for a little bit, and then lust crept in, uh, little by little, and I was isolating, and I grabbed, uh, I started one of my new new hobbies. It was one of my addictions as well at the age of 13. And then when I moved at the age of 16, I continued that to try and replace my lust addiction. That was video games. I actually bought my first computer at 13 and I learned how to program and I learned how to program video games. I learned how to pirate video games. I learned how to program all kinds of fun stuff. Now that was a blessing and a curse. It actually led me to my crack cocaine favorite form of acting out, which is, was internet pornography that I was introduced to in 1996 when I actually was going to a certified network engineering course. So I went there to learn and actually proved that I could do something on there. Because of my 
lack of hearing, I have a genetic disorder. It's called otosclerosis. It actually means that I lose, over time, my ability to hear. So I was going deaf. And my eyesight was actually not very good as well. And so that was kind of a disconcerting situation. But the instructor in front of the class said, I would like to, you to go to a website. The website happened to have a name that was very similar to a porn site. Now, I'd never been introduced to internet pornography up to that point, but I typed in the wrong name, and every behi- everyone behind me started to laugh. I wanted to crawl underneath my desk and disappear. However, what I did want to do is go and continue to act out and find that again and again and again. That was one of the things that I wanted to do. Now, fast forward a little bit farther on. This this time, one of the lies that I bought into is the second I'm married, my problems will be solved. Then I can have sex as often as I want, and she will be really happy because I will be wonderful. For some reason, that didn't work out. In fact, it worked out dismally. And I began to go into some of my favorite character weaknesses, which is victim playing, victim playing, blaming, anger, resentment. And I would just dwell on those things forever and just resent and resent and resent and resent and just drive into that. Now, as part of that, that resentment process and uh, viewing uh, pornography and the way I, I was doing things, I started thinking, you know what? It's probably a good idea if I don't view pornography. I know how I'll stop. I'll start objectifying my wife. I think that's a good idea. Not a good idea. So I started doing that. Okay, my only source of pornography is my wife. One time I was attempting to voyeurize my wife, and I actually made the mistake of voyeurizing my young daughter instead. This escalated. This got worse and worse and worse. Now, fast forward a few years. When I really got motivated to start recovery, I was caught by my wife attempting to voyeurize my daughter. This was not a pretty sight. When she caught me, it was on March 10th, 2007. It happens to be the year that daylight savings changed in the United States to March 10th. On that day, I was actually working with customers uh, around the country. I was assisting on them. I think I had about two and a half hours the night before because I was playing video games, masturbating, and so on in order to try and survive the hellish week that I was in. I was using my addiction to try and cope with life, which was just disastrous. Thankfully, by God's grace, my wife caught me. I hadn't done anything major, but she had no idea what I had done up to this point. She had no clue that I actually had an addiction. I kept that secret from her. And... uh when she caught me, uh, she confronted me, and I actually lied to her flat out, flat out. Nope, I wasn't doing what you saw me doing. That wasn't it. Let me explain it. Just a little bit after that, a prayer that I'd actually offered to God just shortly before, please, God, help me to stop, came back to me, and I actually made a decision that helped me, back, or helped me into this program. What I did is I made the decision to tell the truth. I didn't tell the whole truth, but I started telling the truth. I told my wife, You know what I did? I chose to do that. Now, she already knew that. She was packing up and was going to pack up my children, my three children, and she was going to leave the house. But she actually made the decision. She said, Tim, you need to leave. You need to leave right now. Now, the other miracle was, as the last, one of the last communications I had face-to-face 
with my now ex-wife, was promising her that I would go to any lengths. I would do anything to stop. I would do anything to stop. Not knowing that that is actually the foundation of my future recovery. That was required for my recovery. Now, when I made that commitment, I also started searching for what I could do for the solution. The first thing I thought of is, well, okay, let's talk to my ecclesiastical leader and see what he has to say. So I spoke to him, and he says, well, go talk to a therapist. Okay, I'll talk to a therapist. I went into the therapist. I signed a little page that says, if you sexually assaulted anybody, we're by law, we're required to report this. And so he asked me flat out, have you sexually assaulted anybody? And I said, no. I lied to him. And then I left. Two hours later, the conversation I had with my wife, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. In my mind, I could see myself promising my wife that I would do anything to stop. And I knew one of those have to be honest. I got to get out of this. And so I called up my, that, my therapist. It was actually a Saturday night, 8 p.m. Called him up. And I says, guess what? I am, uh, I did choose to sexually assault someone. And he goes, oh no. And I go, what do I do? And he goes, I don't know. I've never had anybody actually say that before. <laughs> and then I went, oh no. <laughs> Maybe it is only me. I'm the only one on the planet that's as crazy as me. And so I was like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But what I did is he says, okay, I think I need to report you to the Department of uh, Child Services and so on. Here's their phone number. And I says, well, I'm flying out to Hawaii Sunday tomorrow, and, you know, I'm going to be there for a week. You know, how do I do this? And he gave me the numbers. He said, I have to fax, and I have all these requirements and different things. Well, then my imagination started to kick in. That's not a, not a healthy thing, especially my fantasy world addict brain. I started thinking, okay, what's going to happen now? Now, I had a lot of choices along the way. There's a few key things that I made that were key choices to starting my recovery was to make sure that I made sure that I stayed honest. So what I did is I did exactly what that therapist said. Now, Come to find out that was actually the wrong thing to do in my case if I wanted to reduce the amount of time I wanted to spend in prison or jail. So I don't highly recommend doing what I did, but God was in charge of my program. He was totally in charge of my program. And he was taking care of me, and I didn't even realize it. I actually called up from Hawaii, called the uh, Department of Child and Family Services, and told them a little bit of what I had done. And I asked them, is that a bad thing? And they went, yeah, that's pretty bad. At which point I told them where I was staying, what room number on Waikiki, where I was at, and told them everything. And I imagined Black Hawk helicopters coming down and picking me up. They were going to be on the roof in seconds. I was going to be in the news. It was just not going to be a pretty sight. And I was just like, oh, no, this is not good. I lived in fear that whole week. I survived. Interestingly enough, I stayed sober. Now, scared sober is not a good way to be sober. I was, I was a mess. But I was staying sober during that time because I'd promised that I would do whatever it took in order to make it through. So I continued in. I got back. I kept asking, what do I do? What do I do? What's the next thing? I talked to the therapist, and I says, what do I do? And he says, you know what? I am not qualified to actually help you. There's a specific state 
approved group that actually handle cases. And I was like, oh, great. So I've got to find a different therapist. And he says, by the way, you might also want to hook up with a lawyer. So I said, okay. I went into the yellow pages, started thumbing through the pages and asked for a lawyer. And at the same time, I actually had a friend that actually mentioned a 12-step program. Now, based on my childhood experience, 12-step programs don't work. So I spoke to the lawyer. I told him exactly what I had done. He says, okay, I expect seven to nine years in prison before you get before you get parole the first time. I went, okay, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. I'm fine. Now, I wasn't fine, but I was just like, do you know what? If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Because at that point, I started feeling literally the weight of what I had done. The sadness I spent many times totally depressed, very fearful, and wanting to die. I wanted to die so many times. But the other thing that I had found out early on was if they ever find out that you're suicidal, they will put you in jail immediately. I had a handicapped son to take care of, and he was 12 years old. He had just barely gotten his first wheelchair. He could not walk. I was like, I am not going to leave him destitute. So I needed to work, so I pleaded to God, God, help me. I don't know how to do this. And when they told me, hey, I need to tell my employer that I'm about to go into court to see what my sentencing is, I call. I actually went, interestingly enough, to Las Vegas to a convention in order to tell my boss that, by the way, I sexually assaulted a victim and that I will be going to jail and I don't know, ex- and or prison, and I don't know how long it'll be and I don't know how the outcome is. I had actually pled guilty. I told the truth through the process, a very dangerous procedure to do. And I actually had a judge that had ha- actually been on national news for trying an individual that, that had a really notorious sexaholic life. And I was uh, meeting with the same judge. And I really had no hope that I would uh, make it out of prison. I actually had two psychosexual examinations to see if I was where they should recommend me. Both of them recommended prison. Uh, I was, I really didn't have much hope, but I went in and I went before the judge. And one of the things that I'd done before I'd gone in there is I researched different work release programs and I got approval from two lieutenants to go and attend those if it was okayed by the judge. One miracle that happened in that courtroom is the prosecuting attorney failed to read a few of the things that I had submitted earlier that he was supposed to read, and his entire testimony was, was actually was thrown out. And the miracle that I'd been praying for, that I could continue to support my family, whom I had been so unkind to for the past 13 years, essentially, I was given the opportunity to work. So when they sentenced me, they rushed me off, put me in handcuffs. I got to spend some time in jail. I got three weeks to learn how to spend time on a very hard bed. In case anybody you know, has fun sleeping on the floor, that's, you, know, you can spend time doing that. You can get to know how that works. Pick your worst food. Eat it every day for months on end. That's a good way to prep. And uh, just recognizing that things are not going to be comfortable and things are not going to go according to my will is one of the things I had to learn really quick. And one of the things that saved me is the things that I learned in the 12-step program that I just barely started going to. 
is that I needed to look outside myself, look to help someone else in the program. Don't look at what problems I've got. Look to somebody else. Look to help someone else. And I latched onto that. I was grateful that my first sponsor actually found me, and he helped me to find SA and to learn and grow in SA. And at first, I was scared to death to go to my first meeting. I mean, me. I'm like, I'm scared to go to an SA meeting. I'm thinking, they're a freak show. There's no way I want to be in with those crazies. They got to be worse than me. Oh, man, it's going to be bad. I got to the SA meeting, and I felt I was home. That was so weird. I'm like, there's love here. There's acceptance. These people understand what I'm going through, where, I, where I've been. And then I started ta- talking about my first step, and my sponsor says, you might want to back it off a little bit. Some of these guys might run screaming from the room when you start telling your first step. So I had to back it off a little bit about my, my first step experience. And I'm grateful that he was able to help me to temper that a little bit versus going through all the victim playing and blaming and things that I would normally want to do. I could just say, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong when I chose to do that. I was insane when I chose to do that. And thanks to SA and this program, I was able to finally learn how to be sane, learn how to love. I never knew that I did not know how to love. And I was able to achieve that capacity while in SA. I was so grateful for that. As I started going through, I realized, you know what? I need to work with a sponsor. I need to work the steps. At first, I mean, it took me a year and a half to get my first step inventory done, honestly. I wrote it. It was 26 pages, single-lined. It all started with, I chose. And just different things I went through. And I went through that, and I was scared to death to tell it. And when I told it the first time, I didn't actually include everything. And I knew I didn't include everything. And then that same promise that I'd made came back to my mind. Tim, you promised to do whatever it took. At that point in time, I had just barely found out that I was about to become divorced. I just found out that I would not see my children be able to talk to them again. And the first time I was able to talk or actually see my son, who was in a wheelchair, was at his funeral when he died at 19 and a half. That was a very difficult time, but it was also a wonderfully joyous time. That occurred after I was sober for many years and after I'd met my new wife and my new stepchildren and I'd learned how to live happy, joyous, and free. And God took the edge off of that pain, that extreme pain that I could have had. He took that because I gave it to him. And I learned how to do that in SA. I learned how to survive every day in SA. I lost my job. I lost my house. I lost my wife. I lost my kids. I lost everything that I thought I needed to have to be happy. But God knew different. He knew I didn't need those things to be happy. He knew I needed him. I needed my higher power to be happy. That was the only way I could be happy in this life. And I was so grateful for that insight. So now today, I'm married. I have three wonderful stepchildren, and I still have two children, biological children, whom I had the opportunity to actually see 
and I was selfless enough to have my youngest son, who is now 11, adopted to his new stepfather, and I'm grateful for him. I am so grateful for him. And I'm so grateful for the hard work that my, my dear, sweet ex-wife went through to try and help them, that I abandoned her and left her with such a, an extremely difficult responsibility. And I'm grateful for God's help for her and being able to help her and take care of her. That's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And I'm so grateful for today where I can actually love and enjoy this wonderful life. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity which I have to spend each day with my my wonderful children. I have just, uh, it's, it's been amazing. My, my work and everything has changed. I actually own my own business now. I actually have two employees. They both know that I'm an SA. They both know where I'm at. They're both praying for me right now. I've got a lot of sponsees that are praying for me right now. And I am grateful for that because I know their prayers are helping me at this moment. I have many sponsees. I've had over 30 individuals ask me to help them as a sponsor. I've been blessed with the opportunity to attend groups, other groups around the country, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity which I have to, to, to learn and grow each day in recovery and for the blessing that it is in my life. It's just, just an amazing, an amazing experience. I highly recommend SA to everybody, actually. It's like one of the, my favorite things now to do this today is just to, is to promote SA. I've got a lot of people around me that I run into that I know in my immediate family, my extended family, friends, and so on. I've got a lot of work to do, and I get to do it. And I'm so grateful for God for that opportunity to do it. It's a hard road. It's a hard thing. My biggest tearjerkers now is when one of my sponsees chooses to act out or loses sobriety. That hurts. That hurts a lot. But I'm grateful for that opportunity because it reminds me how much I need this program. I cannot live without it. I'm so grateful, grateful, grateful for this program. I'm grateful for my sponsor letting me know that I can actually write that gratitude list down. I can write those things down. So whenever you see me writing, that is what I'm writing. God, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for that group member. I'm grateful for their love. I'm grateful for everyone. And that's something that was totally foreign to me. Gratitude was foreign in my life, and I'm so grateful for that as well, to be able to know that I can be grateful for even the difficult things. I'm now learning to be grateful, and just this past year, I've been saying, thank you, God, for the cold that I have, the strep throat that I have, the hurt back that I have. I've got two ruptured and one herniated disc in my lower back and I've had it for 20 years. Got ruptured or herniated disc in my neck. <laughs> I, got, I got diarrhea here today. <laughs> and I was just like going, God, I'm so grateful for diarrhea and it's, it's a good thing it doesn't happen all the time and I just pray that it doesn't happen in front of the group, otherwise I might have to run away. So... If you ever have a bad day, give thanks to God for it, and it it turns out a lot better. So I just love the opportunity to be here with each one of you. I look forward to spending the rest of my life in recovery, and I hope to see many many of you over and over again. And I, I consider all of you my friends.
And I'm grateful to have such wonderful, absolutely wonderful friends. And with that, I'll take another 24. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.